Hi, I'm Sean. I'm Renee. This is Hope in Crisis, a new podcast series about rights and democracy and how technology can enable or disable it. Listen to Hope in Crisis on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to your podcast. So today we're going to talk with Mary Hoy, Hoy I yes. think. All right. It's always hard for me to pronounce names that are like it looks like it should be Chinese, but she's going to pronounce it Cantonese, right? Oh yeah, it's always tricky. Okay, names are always hard. They are. Uh-huh. So she's a reporter at Quartz uh-huh. and uh, does some freelancing um, for Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Post is an interesting. That's Bezos's newspaper. <laughs> Trump calls fake news. <laughs> so biased. <laughs> you got it. And uh, she does trail running. Uh huh. Which we'll see. Maybe we get to ask her about that. <laughs> and um, it seems to me, at least, that she's really interested in uh, geopolitics, tech, big data, kind of the intersection of the stuff that we care about. And so civil I think, rights. And civil rights, yeah. definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. She wrote about um, graffiti's being removed on Google Map. So in Hong Kong, people made graffiti's about democracy and freedom. And then um, these photos were all blurred or um, removed on Google Maps. So she wrote one piece about it. And then there's also a movement in Thailand going on right now. And she wrote about how people are not trusting Twitter. So they are using crypto social. Instead. Yeah, uh-huh. there's some some website. It's been around for a long time. It's called Minds. Uh-huh. And it seemed like the first day that there was that Twitter thing in Thailand, like 100,000 people switched to it and it crashed. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's huge. So um, pressure leads to innovation. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So um, do you have any interesting questions for her? Well, I think let's talk with her about this idea of cultural revolution 2.0. It seems yeah. very central to her. Uh-huh. And then, of course, let's get some of her insights on the role of tech. Uh-huh. I hope to get insights of both uh, big tech as an American big tech, but also China big tech. Yeah, I look forward to talking to her because um, what she's doing is very similar with what we're doing. She's um, using English, the language, as a medium to spread messages and then to help more people understand what's going on in Asia. All right. Everyone, welcome back to Hope in Crisis. We're really excited today to have our first uh, remote session with Mary. Welcome to the Hello. show. <laughs> so, Mary, would you like to um, introduce yourself to us and the audience? Talk about um, how you started your journalist life and why you started covering these features about Hong Kong's movement and technologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, my. F- my name is Mary Hoy. Uh, I'm a reporter for Quartz. I'm from Hong Kong. I'm based in Hong Kong. And I've been with Quartz now uh, for a year and a half since uh, April of last year. Um, and from Hong Kong, um, we cover kind of broadly the Asian region um, at the intersection of geopolitics, tech, business, and how all of that fits into kind of this larger picture of how the global economy is changing and uh, and trying to make sense of that. Um, and of course, since last June, when the protests kicked off in Hong Kong, uh, kind of 90% of my time or 
more than that of much of last year was really just focused on on the Hong Kong protests and and how questions of technology and um, protest movements, protest tactics, uh, language and culture, how all of that plays out uh, through the protests. Um, And now that the protests um, are no longer kind of as much on the streets, uh, the focus has shifted slightly to kind of the ramifications and and the continuing changes in Hong Kong uh, civil society and then um, in addition to that, also keeping an eye on uh, kind of other kind of broader economic questions to do with China and uh, its role in the world. Mary, can I get you to explain this protest and what's going on to, say, a Western audience that has not followed closely? I mean, even myself, like I live in Taiwan. Most of my time is here. But I feel like I've struggled to keep up with the story. So can you kind of take us from day one of the protests, like what was going on, what what were sort of the conditions that led to these protests? Yeah, so the protests that kicked off uh, in June of 2019, it's kind of the latest chapter of Hong Kong's uh, pro-democracy, the Hong Kong's democracy movement. Um, and it was you know, kicked off by this controversial extradition law that would have meant that um, Hong Kongers could be sent to mainland China to face trial where they are not guaranteed a fair trial. Um, that was the proximate cause of the protests. But of course, over time, it kind of morphed into kind of just general discontent and frustrations with how the government was handling the protests or of how the government was not uh, listening to the popular will and also the excessive use of force by the police in, in cracking down on the peaceful protesters, uh, largely peaceful protesters. Um, and, and so it just became this huge, huge political problem that uh, really saw no kind of resolution in large part because um, the government's, Hong Kong government's hands were tied. Um, it really had no ultimate authority. Beijing was really the ones that was calling the shots. And it was kind of unclear how or whether they would ever budge. Um, and so the protests carried on for months, large-scale, streetwide protests. And now we're in kind of the next chapter of that, which is Beijing's heavy-handed crackdown um, on Hong Kong civil society, changing laws, implementing new laws like the national security law that we saw come into force um, in late June, uh, July 1st. Um, and and um, really kind of re uh, reshaping the entire Hong Kong society to fit into China's mold of total control of kind of total national security, where anything that questions um, or, or yeah, anything that um, pushes up against uh, the Communist Party's uh, hold on power is regarded as a threat to national security and must be put down. And, and so now we're in this chapter of seeing uh, Hong Kong being kind of folded into um, China's authoritarian grip. Yeah, so um, for me, I just cannot imagine how difficult it is to have this pro-democracy movement in an authoritarian regime. Um, I think that the two values clash. So basically, an um, authoritarian government will not tolerate democracy because democracy means that people have the right. They have the right to decide their future. They have the right to decide who they want to authorize to run the government, right? 
So um, can you tell us more about um, the pro-democracy movement and the progress, if there's any? Yeah, I guess at the heart of all of this is this um, is this basic contradiction um, that's really kind of baked into the very existence of Hong Kong since its handover from uh, the, uh, being a British colony um, to Chinese sovereignty, where there was this attempt to um, set up Hong Kong as this partially free city uh, with guaranteed civil liberties and rights, uh, a bill of rights even um, as part of Hong Kong's constitution that was molded in large part um, based on the um, you know International Covenant on Human Rights. Um, I forget exactly the the the, the title. Um, and at the same time, still have your kind of ultimate master as as China, where these civil liberties and rights aren't protected. Um, so, so how do you have these two um, diametrically opposed systems coexisting? And for a while, it did, um, uh, though it was always kind of on ten, uh, on on shaky ground and. Um, you know, over the years, we've seen China try to rein in Hong Kong a bit more, a bit more. Um, and um, as you have more and more frustrations piling up, and then you have something like the extradition bill um, that really shook Hong Kongers, many Hong Kongers, um, and, and kind of brought to the fore their fears of everything um, that the the authoritarian system um, uh, represents in China. That really kicked off. Um, I, I guess blew the lid off of everything and 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 sparked this uh, mass uh, protest movement. And could you talk a little bit about what the tech companies like? What role are they playing? And I'm really most curious as to how you, as a journalist, see your role and the relationship to, say, government and tech. Um, by tech, it, you can either talk about sort of technology itself or big tech, Facebook, Google's these kind of. Uh, Western, you know, tech corporations. I would also be really curious if you could share any insights about the Chinese tech companies and are they doing anything interesting in Hong Kong? Or blocking anything. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess as we've seen over the past, you know, year or two in uh, protest movements, not just in Hong Kong, but more recently in Thailand, in Belarus, um, across the U.S., tech really has played a huge role in shaping um, the direction and the dynamics of uh, popular mass protest movements. They're a way for protesters to communicate with each other, to get their message out, um, to innovate on the spot and figure out how to um, change their protest tactics, how to organize themselves, uh, what kind of posters, what kind of hashtags to use. So all of that... Um, is very much enabled by the technology platforms. Um, and in the case of Hong Kong, the foreign tech companies find themselves sometimes in a bit of a tough and tricky situation where they want to have access to the highly lucrative market in China. Um, but at the same time, they they should um, kind of stay true to kind of the liberal democratic values of uh, the countries uh, where they originate from. So, for example, the U.S. Uh, so, in, in this, in to give you a specific example, we have Apple, 
Um, so last year, uh, one uh, uh, protester here in Hong Kong developed this app called Hong Kong Map Live, uh, which is this kind of real time dynamic. Uh, uh, crowdsourced map to show where protests were happening, where police had fired tear gas, deployed water cannons. And there was a way for protesters, but also just non-protesters, people who just want to go down the street and get something to eat to, to figure out where the action is so that they can avoid tear gas. But Apple um, banned that app from its app store, saying that the app was enabling criminal activity, that it was enabling uh, protesters to ambush police officers and that hence it was not to be allowed on the app store and uh, subsequently took it down. Um, so there you see a very interesting um, contradiction, I guess, where the app, uh, if we, anyone's kind of common understanding of this app is that it, it isn't providing you any more information than uh, say watching a live stream would and so to, to say that it's enabling criminal activity is quite farcical but the fact that Apple had to I guess bow down to the pressure uh, imposed from by Beijing authorities to take the app down really says a lot about at the position that uh, tech companies can find themselves in when they're trying to balance both their profit motive and um, I guess the values that they espouse. Do, do you know details about that? Like, do you know if, if Beijing was pressuring Apple through Hong Kong law or were they using sort of China's judicial system? Do you know about how that was working behind the scenes? Yeah, and um, it, it was just depressing for me to know that a life-saving app can be banned and labeled as helping or contributing to criminal activities. And we talked about black boxes the other day in our different episode about how the entire app store is a huge black box. And then when your app is removed, there's no, almost no way for you to make a, to file a complaint. But I'm thinking about roundabouts. Is there, is there any other way for people to upload this app for other people to use? Like with Android, you have APKs, so p users can download an app without going to the um, Play Store. Yeah, in this instance, in this instance, the developer made it into a web app. So you know, obviously, there's the uh, Android there app that's loaded onto the Google Play, and then and yeah, so the roundabout way here was to make it into a web app, and and um, this kind of this this problem uh, repeated itself uh, later on in the year in uh, June July. Uh, when um, the opposition camp in Hong Kong held its primaries, uh, primary elections ahead of the official elections, which would have been in September, um, that are now delayed. And so they, they held this unofficial primary to try and uh, field the strongest slate of candidates. And they used this one app um, that was kind of distributed, um, designed to uh, be resilient against any kind of cyber attack, to protect privacy so that voters' um, uh, information wouldn't easily fall into the hands of authorities. So that app was uploaded and, and authorized by the Google Play Store, but it never got approved. And uh, to my knowledge, still has not yet been approved uh, by the Apple App Store. And after the uh, unofficial primary election, the Hong Kong and Beijing government came out and made it very clear that this unofficial primary election was illegal. Um, not exactly sure why, um, but they say that it's an illegal exercise. And, and so 
one can conjecture and, uh, and theorize as to kind of what kind of pressure was put on Apple behind the scenes. Um, I poked around a little bit more afterwards and saw another app um, developed by, I think, two uh, Europeans, I forget where exactly they're from, that kind of served very much the same purpose. They market themselves as a way to kind of hold unofficial polls uh, especially in places where maybe democratic elections aren't being held. And that app is uh, readily available on the App Store, on the Apple App Store. So the question as to why this particular one in Hong Kong was not approved, I think, um, can, leads to many different questions about um, what kind of pol- politics played into the decision making. I hijacked your question, right? No, <laughs> no, no, no. You were asking about the judicial laws? No, I mean, I was just curious, like, was there any transparency into Apple's decision to do this? Like, did they say we were complying with law or did they just be silent and take it down? Um, I'll have to look back. So much has happened since then. I don't remember the exact details, but um, I think they did quote something about... uh, them having to follow the laws of the local jurisdictions in which they operate. But I forget exactly what the details are and which jurisdiction they were referring to. Can you explain a little bit about this security law? So my understanding is that Hong Kong had some basic law and there was not a security law. And during the protests, Beijing basically said, hey, go do a security law or else we'll do it for you. And then they created this really big thing and i guess you have some real concerns about article 33 can you talk a little bit about this like first what is this security law and what what was it trying to solve like what what was the issue that hong kong wasn't able to have a security law if i'm saying this correctly yeah um so in hong kong's basic law which is um kind of hong kong's mini constitution uh one of the articles says that hong kong should enact its own national security legislation. Um, that has not been done uh, over the years, um, in large part because of widespread opposition to it back in 2003, when half a million people came out to march against um, the implementation of uh, a national security law. So, you know, fast forward to 2020, nearly, uh, well, 17 years later, um, you know, China has definitely run out of patience with Hong Kong, especially in light of the months of um, protests that were, you know, honestly a huge embarrassment for Beijing that these protesters were able to make international headlines all over the world. Um, and so they finally decided that, yeah, I guess now is the time to really crack down and that they were they had had enough of uh, protests in Hong Kong. So they implement what is called the national security law, where I guess national security is defined very, very broadly by Beijing as anything that has to do with upholding and safeguarding uh, the one-party system. And so at the, I guess at the core of this national security law is, is that very broad, vague and sweeping definition of what national security is. Um, and so now that that is in, in place, it kind of technically it criminalizes uh, four sets of crimes, four different crimes, subversion, secession, foreign interference, What's the fourth? Wow, I'm suddenly blanking. Um, 
but you know a, a large set of vaguely defined um, activities that are kind of so vaguely yeah that are, that are so vaguely defined that really anything that Beijing um, doesn't like uh, can be deemed to be in breach of the national security law and hence land you in prison uh, for potentially a quite a large amount of time. It also enables uh, China to directly set up a national security unit in Hong Kong that's above um, and beyond existing law. They aren't governed by by local laws. They can essentially, it sets up a, a, a secret police organization in Hong Kong and they're allowed to do whatever they please. Um, and and so I guess kind of both those t- both those things taken together, both the the vague and broad definition of what the crimes are, that the um, the heavy punishment, and also um, the sweeping powers that it now gives to police and the national security unit and the government, means that uh, state control over people's everyday lives has dramatically increased, and um, people do I guess live in fear of what whether anything they say or do could land them in jail and of course Beijing frames all of this as good for Hong Kong as restoring stability but if we I guess look back at history um, different political theorists have noted particularly Hannah Arendt has noted that a lot of totalitarians um, you know dangle this this um, idea of stability as a way to control populace and I think that's what exactly we're seeing right now. I think what Hong Kong is doing right now is very amazing. Um, I think that um, what's going on is a tragedy, but I think that Hong Kong is demonstrating to all of us, the entire world, that um, democracy is very valuable. Because I think that right now in the very polarized social media, some people would criticize democracy and say that, oh, democracy is very inefficient or democracy is a messy, chaotic process. And that implies when you have a very centralized and, and a very authoritarian government, everything works better <laughs> in a more efficient way. And then um, the government is more commanding. But the, the reason why I um, want to raise awareness about authoritarian government is because um, it violates some very basic human rights, like the freedom of speech or the freedom of traveling or the freedom of getting education or the freedom of making some positive changes to the future. So... Um, I think that Hong Kong is waking up everyone in other parts of the world that communism is not something that you can, communism is not something that can be accepted for the sake of capitalism. Mary, you mentioned in one of your articles you view this as almost like a cultural revolution 2.0. Can you explain what you mean by that? And then I'm also very curious as to what is different from 1.0 to 2.0? Is like 2.0 more social? Is this like web 2.0? Like what, what is it that makes <laughs> it 2.0? more influential. Yeah, what's going on there? Um, sure, well 2.0 just, I guess, more in reference to the fact that this is, it has echoes of the cultural rev- revolution um, that we saw in the 60s. Um, but of course, obviously we're now not in the 60s, and but it's happening again. Um, so I guess it refers more to kind of 
echoes of what we've previously seen happening again. Um, and, and I guess more concretely, um, it's referring to this culture of friends or family snitching on each other and reporting each other for being in violation of the national security law, not being patriotic enough, um, questioning the uh, Communist Party's uh, legitimacy and credibility. Um, and even as recently as last week or the week before, the police rolled out a hotline on uh, WeChat and also uh, just the regular phone number for people to report instances that they see in daily life where people are have um, violated the national security law. And that kind of gets to the very heart of this hot cultural revolution 2.0, where there is now an official channel and by implication, official um, encouragement to report on people who you might know, um, who you see violating the national security law. And, and in my story uh, that I did earlier this year, I talked to uh, doctors, um, uh, uh, civil servants, and um, and, uh, and teachers um, about their fears of, you know, just what they get up to in their daily work lives um, that they now fear could land them in hot water if they accidentally say quote-unquote the wrong thing or wear the wrong thing or somehow signal kind of incorrect political leanings. So tell us more, tell, tell um, all of our audience members more about the importance of cultural revolutions, the two uh, revolutions 1.0 and 2.0. Why do people in other parts of the world need to know about this and about the consequences? So in my personal experience, when I had to talk about cultural revolution, the first one in English, it's usually because people ask me about the languages used in Taiwan and China. People would say, oh, so are you using the same language? And then I have to explain that, oh, we're using the traditional Chinese characters and they're using the simplified Chinese characters. And then the conversation would lead to cultural revolution. And then for foreigners, okay, people who uh, receive in information in English only, um, their response is, oh, pity. Sorry that their cultures and temples and old buildings were burned. And oh. that's it. That's it. So, so, so their, their, their response was like, ah, oh, bummer, but it has nothing to do with me. Right. So I think there's well, we have a history of destroying old things. I mean, this is just Western culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think some values were destroyed too in the Cultural Revolution. Some something unethical was done and uh, passed down in the first Cultural Revolution. That that's that's my personal opinion. So tell us more about the cultural revolutions and why people need to care about it. Mm. Yeah, I think in both instances, you know, both 1.0 and 2.0, it's maybe, yeah, you talk about values. Um, and yeah, I do agree. It is the kind of the insidious nature of the, what we might call the cultural revolution is how it really tears apart kind of the fabric of society by um, destroying trust um, uh, between people. Uh, it kind of in pursuit of this goal that's been implemented from above to 
um, uphold certain political goals and to root out certain elements that are deemed to kind of deviate from that political goal. So I think, you know, beyond just Hong Kong or, or China, we have seen this uh, elsewhere in the world throughout history. And, you know, for people who might not be as familiar with Chinese history um, and who may, might get a little tripped up on, on the Cultural Revolution label, I think maybe we could point them towards, say, um, instances and other authoritarian regimes where people are encouraged to rat out each other uh, because they want to um, uh, showcase kind of their total loyalty to the political regime over um, their personal relationships. So I, I think kind of that's what I'm trying to get at more than maybe the exact um, whether the Cultural Revolution 1.0 and 2.0 are exact kind of carbon copies of each other. Mary, do you have any personal takes on what are some possible paths forward? And is there any that you feel are hopeful? Hmm, for Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, sorry to ask such a dark question, but um, I'd, I'd like to try to understand a bit more about how you see the future. Like, what are some possibilities? Um, well, I think it's hard to place kind of any kind of confidence or trust in established institutions right now. We just had today, um, I guess we're talking on, what is it now, the 11th of November, um, just today Beijing kind of passed down this resolution that enables it effectively to expel any politician from Hong Kong's legislature that they don't like and effectively allows them to take entire control over the legislature and expel all opposition. And Carrie Lam, the chief executive, even came out to say, well, you know, we don't have to be ashamed of the fact that there will no longer be an opposition because we can pass bills more quickly. So she is openly proud of having a rubber stamp parliament. So I think the way forward is um, maybe not to um, place any kind of trust or hope in these kinds of constitutions that are, uh, not constitutions, uh, these institutions um, that maybe people previously had looked to as a way of pushing back against uh, the state. And really, right now, it's really up to, I think, civil society where through schools or local businesses or families and friend groups, um, small acts of daily resistance, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, um, can keep people together um, in kind of their, I guess, yeah, their fight for uh, f freedom and, and, and um, liberal democratic values. Um, and a large part of it is also to not get lost in um, these kind of day-to-day uh, developments uh, where it feels like sometimes you have a constant kind of unending stream of bad news and um, uh, kind of crackdowns and uh, so kind of keeping track of those and also calling things out for what they are um, really paying a lot of attention to government rhetoric and not getting uh, not becoming desensitized to um, kind of the whitewashing and the glossing over of certain facts um, that the government might like to put out through their propaganda or their statements. What do you think your job looks like one year from now? One year from now? Um, well, obviously, press freedom in Hong Kong has come under immense pressure and 
um, is facing a lot of kind of dire threats. We have reporters getting arrested, newsrooms being raided, newspaper owners also being arrested. None of that is good. I guess, yeah, there is this kind of general kind of miasma over um, that, that hangs over the, the press corps in Hong Kong. But at the same time, we kind of just have to keep doing what we're doing. Um, I guess right now, um, I would say I don't feel an acute sense of risk personally, but of course, it's always there. And uh, I think what we have to do is just kind of continue reporting and um, and um, describing things as they are. Um, do you think there's anything that the tech community can do to shed some light on um, the hope and and facilitate your vision for yourself for the next year? Mm. Um, uh, you talked about civil society, and a lot of our listeners are organizing hackathons, and there are hackathons for democratic developments, there are hackathons for... Um, education or um, human rights. So, uh, and the Gov Zero stuff. Like, yeah, is there something so like Gov Zero <laughs> going on in Hong Kong? There is. I'm not too familiar with that community, but I do know that they they are active here. Um, yeah, it seems like you know, just even collating information that the government is not happy to share, or in a kind of a coherent way, um, and and taking it upon ourselves as civil society to do some of those things to collect say a database of the number of times that police have fired tear gas so the number of times that they've broken their own um kind of rules for how they should engage with protesters um you know things like that where uh, you are collating information and then using that to make sense of what you're seeing um and what's happening i think that in itself is uh, quite powerful and um i would say that that would be something that the tech community can really help with. And what about like tools? Are you seeing people like, for example, adopt Bitcoin, any sort of like censorship resistant technology? Like I know you wrote an article about mines happening in Thailand. Mm. Do you see the people in Hong Kong forming online communities that are helping to uh, like get more strength in numbers? Like are, are people using Tor there more? Like are, are there any technologies that you are excited by these days? Mm, um, I guess, yeah, uh, VPN downloads have gone through the roof. Uh, people are paying much more attention to encrypting uh, their uh, communications um, and, and just generally kind of their digital security. Uh, so I think anything that kind of falls under that umbrella, I'm sure people would readily embrace. What do you think the Western world should learn from Hong Kong or what can the Western world learn from Hong Kong and what could we do to help Hong Kong? Um, I think what we've seen throughout the protests um, is how the Hong Kong protest movement this time around um, was able to drum up much more momentum than in years past because it uh, it focused or, or it devoted um, energy and resources to spreading its message out to uh, an international audience um, and also um, um, 
kind of working directly with foreign governments and politicians, for example, lo- lobbying uh, US uh, politicians to um, pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act um, or the Hong Kong uh, People Free- Freedom and Choice Act that's currently being uh, kind of going through the process, which would allow Hong Kongers um, kind of special um, uh, refugee status in the US. Um, I, I don't think any of that would have been possible without kind of the grassroots diplomacy that we saw um, over the past year, both in the US, also the UK, as we see with the UK now um, um, uh, granting a path to citizenship for not just um, kind of BN, uh, British national overseas uh, holders, but also people who were uh, eligible for that. So up to three million people who can eventually settle in the UK if they wish to. Um, so things like that, um, I think, uh, you know, really show kind of the power of taking or uh, acknowledging kind of all these linkages of uh, between countries and how um, uh, kind of expanding your protest movement beyond your immediate physical borders can actually help put um, pressure on um, the government that you're ultimately protesting against. Yeah, thank you very much for all of the information and the insight. I hope that um, the next time we talk, you're in a safer place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mary. Really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. This was uh, good to chat. So, how do you like it, the talk? It was as I thought it was going to be. Pretty as depressing. Dark. Pretty heavy. Oh. Very dark. Uh huh. Yeah, I was trying to bring up hope in crisis, but it was so difficult. Only crisis. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and tragedies. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about something different. <laughs> do you see hope? Well, in this. I do actually. Oh, okay. and you know, there's that saying: "Necessity is the mother of all invention." Mm-hmm. And I think that what we're seeing is a collision of different worldviews, or legal systems, or political, you know, parties, and increasingly, people will realize that we just got to come up with better ways of organizing. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that that just like COVID is driving so much online, yeah. that things like these Hong Kong protests are going to drive what we would call governance down closer to the people. Mm-hmm. And they'll realize that that the politicians aren't going to solve your problems that we need new tools, we need new ways of organizing to solve our own problems. And so I think that that is the silver lining out of all of this. Just like how COVID sucks and it's making a mess out of the US, Mm -hmm. I think that this protest sucks and it's making a mess out of Hong Kong. But the people will hopefully, like this is the hopeful side, is the people will use this to create the tools that we all need. How about people in other places um, in the rest of well, the world? Well, I want to ask you this one, right? So we've got this, um, 
what do you call it? One system, two countries. One country, two systems. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it means that Hong Kong is part of China, so yeah. one country, but two different systems. But they say the same thing for Taiwan, right? Ah,、uh, they wanna propose that to Taiwan. Okay, but I mean, the U.S. acknowledges, at least from my perspective, that it's a one,、uh, one country, two systems. So I'm not sure if the United States acknowledges that Taiwan is a part.、Uh, that's tricky. It's really tricky. Yeah. Okay. Like, how do you feel, like personally, when、about、you listen? About Hong Kong. To, no, like when you listen to her speak about Hong Kong, like as a Taiwanese person, how does that make you feel? Ah.、Uh, Okay. First of all, I'm really sorry about what's going on in Hong Kong, and、um, I think it would be too、um, it it would be too offensive to say that oh I can relate to that or I can partly understand what's going on, but、um, I think that their experiences are a great mirror and or a window for、um, people in Taiwan.、Mm. First of all, it burst. A bubble. So, in the last forty years, I've heard so many Taiwanese politicians talking about that one day, if Taiwan becomes a financial hub in Asia Pacific, then Taiwan is invincible. <laughs> like China would never attack Taiwan because so many international companies are investing in Taiwan. So, if Taiwan is in Gate, uh, is in any kind of war, then these international companies would want to protect their assets, and then they would use different kinds of forces, like lobbying or, 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 or money, to stop China from attacking Taiwan. But look at Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a、yeah. financial hub in Asia. Yeah. So was. Ah.、Uh, It seems like they're all moving now. They're moving to Shanghai, Shanghai Singapore. Singapore. Yeah. 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 But、um, this. Saying is based on the Switzerland model, so Switzerland is very small and vulnerable and doesn't have a huge military, but it's、um, secured itself by building its financial powers. So I think people in Hong Kong and Taiwan believe that if we become a financial hub or if we attract a lot of money, and then、um, other countries and other governments and other businesses have a lot of assets here. Then we're invincible. Obviously, that's a fantasy. That feels so. So, what you learn from Hong Kong is that that idea is probably not true. Yeah, it's not realistic. I see. Uh huh. And the other thing is that、uh, I feel very privileged to be born and grow up here and live here.、Mm. I still believe that human rights are given. It's just that they can be taken away by. Um, different governments, and、yeah. and right now, human rights in Hong Kong is taken away by a communist party. Well, and corporations too. I mean, Apple seems to be <gasps> perfectly willing to help out. I know. I was. I. I. I was. Like. It's like, damn it, Steve Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't you be alive now? <laughs> I was trying so hard to come up with some light or something hopeful in our conversation. I was trying to say, oh, is there anything technologists can do? No. Right now, the tech companies are worsening the situation. They're well, not helping. You should separate technologists from technology companies in your mind, because they can be separate. Like some of the best technologists are outside these companies. True. And these companies are because they've become such monopolies. We've talked about this before. They're not innovating like they used to. Right. Instead, they're trying to protect their 
incumbency. Right. So, uh, let me rephrase. Yeah. I think technologists can help, but um, at the same time, they need to scale up their contribution. Well, it's hard because, like she said, that Apple blocks the entrance to right. the phone. Right. Google right. doesn't okay, so probably block the phone. I should just blame the big tech companies. Oh, it's very hard. Like we need ways to route around them. It's almost uh -huh. like it's almost like the way the internet worked with TCP/IP. If there was some uh, malignant actor that's dropping data, dropping packets, then uh -huh. TCP/IP will just route around it. Uh -huh. It's like the people need to find some way of routing around these big tech companies. Yeah, so we're basically facing two kinds of um, authoritarian regimes. One yeah. is communism, and one is tech monopoly, yeah. or capitalist monopoly. Yeah. So that's that's how I feel. I'm sorry for our audience that we didn't come up with hope in crisis. But I think if we make sure that people understand the scope of the crisis, then there can be hope. So I keep thinking that that Hong Kong should do this Gov Zero stuff. Uh huh. Like I heard a podcast a couple of weeks ago uh -huh. with Audrey Audrey Tang and um, Tristan Harris. Oh. And it was such a great podcast. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I knew what Gov Zero was. And then the way she described Gov Zero is it's a fork. Of a government service, uh -huh. and I was like, "What is that? What it is? <laughs> it's like there's some government service that's uh -huh. being provided, and you don't think it's good enough. Uh -huh. And so what you do is you go fork it, and you yeah. make your own, yeah, and then you offer it to the people, right? I mean, but, if that's not the solution to Hong Kong, I don't know what is. Uh, that's what Taiwan did with public health. It's incredible. I yeah. think that's like that's that right there is the hope is if we can. Somehow get the Gov Zero people to go over there, help them out. Uh, I think Hong Kong has too many bankers. Uh, yeah, and then I think that your proposal is a little bit too wishful. So for that work, for Gov Zero to become a fork of government service, there needs to be trust between government and people. Well, and eventually, I mean, people just fork it first. Oh. Right, like okay. if you look at the history of the sunflower movement, I mean, I heard this from you, right? <laughs> like the government didn't trust the people first; the people just did it. Uh, right? Uh, yeah, but <laughs> it trust came later. Uh, I think Hong Kong is just more complicated. I think there's a possible yeah, path. Yeah, like this is the only hope. path that I'm seeing that feels hopeful. Is let's go zero this thing. Yeah. So I had one question in mind. I was I I was thinking about that. I can ask her. Looking forward, do you see a path? And then you took it. I so, tried. Yeah. But she didn't give us a good answer, did she? I think she couldn't give us a good answer. Maybe she has a great answer. Uh huh. But because it's a strategy or a tactic, yeah. she doesn't want yeah, to reveal it. Yeah. She has it. to keep it hidden. Yeah. Uh -huh. So let's hope for that. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So thank you very much. For listening to this episode, if you have any hopeful ideas, let us know. This podcast is brought to you by Bitmark and Girls in Tech Taiwan. So Bitmark uh, was founded from the belief that data is the next major asset class, and so what Bitmark does is create tools for individuals to gain control and access over their data, and eventually unlock all kinds of new value in that data. 
Girls in Tech Taiwan is the Taiwan chapter of a global nonprofit focused on the engagement, education, and empowerment of influential women in technology and entrepreneurship.